the word ekphrasis comes from the Greek for the description of the work of art produced as a rhetorical exercise. It is a vivid, often dramatic, verbal description of a visual art piece. This is Darwin Messidu. Welcome to The Ekphrastic, a podcast where we paint pictures with words. Today's subject, Benny Andrews. The son of sharecroppers with no formal training, he ended up developing his figurative style by simply observing those around him. We'll get to know him a little bit better. But first, let's get into some news from the art world. Okay, the very first thing we have here is uh, probably a new concept to most, NFTs, a new disruptor in the art market. I'm reading this from the art newspaper, and this was written in uh, last month, January uh, 2021, by Georgina Adam. It, uh, it features a, uh, a Looney Tunes um image here with Donald Trump as the, you know, that that's all folks was that uh, Porky Pig and the, uh, d- 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 that's all folks, but Donald Trump is, is in the middle of that and uh, he's got a clown nose on and he's featured with this orange uh, makeup as usual. Uh, it'll make sense a little bit later when I read on uh, further, but they go on to say, in October last year, Christie's included a work by Robert Alice in its post-war and contemporary art sale. Although looking rather like a vinyl LP, the circular gold leaf and acrylic on canvas piece up close consists over a quarter of a million digits of code, with 32 gold encrusted ones hidden among them. The the 2019 work, called Block 21, leapfrogged its 12,000 to 18,000 estimate to sell for $131,000 and was accompanied by a NFT. NFT stands for non-fungible token, by the way. Again, bear with me. We'll get there in a second. A digital version that automatically resets itself to the time zone of the owner's location. This was the first time a major auction house had sold one of its digital tokens. Meanwhile, the artist writer, dealer, and art world gadfly Kenny Schachter has also been producing NFTs, recently offering three-digit works on the Nifty platform. One of his take on Donald Trump's defeat, he titled it, that's all folks, uh, it's a digital work based on the end title of the Looney Tunes films. I don't know how old you are, but I grew up on Looney Tunes. Uh, and at the end, you know, uh, Porky Pig would show up and he said, that's all, folks. And it had the little circular animation around him. Shatter off- offered an addition of five of these for $500 each. All of them sold. And they have since been traded a number of times. One had received a bid of $1,000 at the time of writing. On each resale, Shatter uh, received a small commission. All the art I make is digital, in the form of videos or images. Now I'm chomping at the bit to sell more works like this. Uh, I'm convinced that the field will mushroom in the coming two to three years. 
So what are NFTs? NFTs are dummies. Are they the future of the art world? Um, some have claimed so. Or are they just another here today, gone tomorrow, speculative phenomenon? So the fungible part of NFT describes something that is identical to something else. So one gram of gold or a Glaxo, uh, GlaxoSmithKline share, for example, is the same as any other. When you buy an NFT, you are buying a token and the work of art linked to it. The transition is registered on the, on the blockchain and decentralized database. The work can be unique, as in the Alice piece, for example, or in additions, as in the Schachter ones, but each token is unique to that work. The purchase of the NFT registered on the blockchain provides a permanent record that purchase and provides proof of ownership. You can display it on your computer or TV, print it out, resell it. While anyone can print out or display an image from the internet, that image doesn't necessarily, be, it doesn't belong to them. They cannot, they can't trade it. Um, uh, but NFTs protect the artist's authorship and it makes, it creates a secondary market. Payment is generally made in cryptocurrency. No doubt, stimulated by the boom of cryptocurrencies, the market of NFT is growing. In December 2020, nearly 9 million worth of NFT-based artwork was sold, according to cryptocurrency news websites. This next part is called Balls Deep in Cute Kittens. It's a title I think of a piece. Those from a more traditional art background will, will be horrified by most of the art offered in NFTs. Garish, jaggedly drawn faces, cartoonish figures, cute kittens. The images are often derived from video games, comics, or fantasy movies, like something on the back of a van, Schachter says, but he notes that NFT art is attracting an entirely new audience of buyers. Hey, if you got a buyer, aka capitalism. The artists themselves are hardly traditional. Beeple, for instance, one of the best-selling NFT artists, introduced a, uh, a drop, a flash sale when new works are released. When a statement that starts, ha 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 ha, okay, so we're going balls deep on this motherfucker. End quote. <laughs> Meanwhile, other players in the digital field are getting interest. Verisart, for instance, uh, which registered art um, at its uh, provenance in ownership on the blockchain, is providing certificates of NFTs with the artist's image and details current owner key URL secure QR code, and unique blockchain address. The growth of the NFT market has been phenomenal, and we're delighted to have verified some of the leading artists in this emerging new art market, says Verisart's art executive and founder, Robert Norton. So, is this just a flash in the pan or more permanent arrivals in the art market? Uh, who knows? No, neither the low value of the market, probably a little over 13.6 mil, in total, hardly massive, uh, nor the quality of the art offered indicate it will threaten the traditional trade anytime soon. But as Norton points out, street art was initially disregarded. And now Banksy, Banksy 
Banksy's prints could set you <laughs> back over a million. So in the same light, let's fetch some coins for an NFT. Christy, Christy, this is Christy, the, uh, um, the uh, auction house, is making a movie into the emerging crypto art market with plans to offer a fully digital work of art, making it the major, uh, the first major auction house to offer a piece of this kind for sale. This next one I'm reading from you is uh, from Art News, uh, titled Christie's to Sell Its First Fully Digital Work of Art in Test of Emerging Market. This one was written in February 2021 uh, by Angelica Villa. So you can look her up, check her out. She goes on to say, the work known as an NFT is by Beeple. We mentioned him in a previous article. Um, I think his uh, proper name is uh, Name Mike uh, Winkleman. Probably Name Mike Winkleman. I'm not sure where he's from. A net artist and graphic designer who has amassed a large, uh, a large following on social media, producing commercial projects for pop stars and brands like Louis Vuitton and Nike. Uh, a Christie representative called him a leader in the digital art community. The work selling at Christie's titled Every Days, The First 5,000 Days 2021 is a digital collage consisting of 5,000 images, one made each day over the course of 13 years, from 2007 to 2021. Unlike many works uh, which come to sale with a predetermined estimate, Every Days does not have a price range. Bidding will begin at $100 in an online auction. That runs from February 25th to March 11th. The unique addition from Beeple's Everyday series is comprised of drawings reconsidered to, to current events, incorporating surreal scenes of politicians like Donald Trump and Mao Zedong and cartoons featuring Pokemon and Mickey Mouse. So, you know, again, this is a bunch of everyday events that happen in that entire time span. I, I look at it, I'm looking at it, and it's a... Um, it just looks like a giant collage, um, but it it's it's art. I mean, I have seen plenty of pieces, you know, abstract art that look just like this. And for it to be created digitally, and for a lot of people like myself during the quarantine times have been uh, consuming art in a digital format. What do what do I know? Either way, you print it, you print this thing out, and you frame it, you hang it up on a wall, and at the Met somewhere, you know, I enjoy the aesthetics of it, and it's dope. So, art is in the eye of the beholder, I guess? Christie's is not the first to auction an NFT work by Beeple, whose collection of 21 original works from his everyday project generating $3.5 million in December in an auction with crypto art platform Nifty Gateway, crypto art relies on non-fungible tokens. We talked about that earlier. The transaction uh, and ownership records of which are encrypted and unable to be duplicated. The present work exists as an encrypted file, and its purchase at the end of Christie's auction will be registered on the blockchain. Christie's, Christie's has taken an interest in digital uh, technologies, both on the block and behind the scenes. 
In October, the house sold a piece from Robert Alice's 2020 painting ser- series, Portrait of a Mind. That incorporates Bitcoin code into its composition. And in 2018, the house collaborated with blockchain-backed art registry service, Artery, to host the sale of Barney e, uh, Ebrof's, um, Ebrof's American Art Collection. So I, I, I checked out this one piece here, Portraits of the Mind. Again, it's fascinating. Art is an eye beholder. Um, it's, it looks like, you know, washers and, you know, when you have like, when you're, when you're building something from Ikea or something like that, it comes with nuts and bolts and washers, those little round disc type things with the hole in the middle. And so this piece is a bunch of giant washers that are hanging from the ceiling. And when you zoom in on them, um, and of course this is created digitally, when you zoom in on them, what is creating the colorscape that you're observing are a bunch of digital codes, <laughs> ones and zeros, if you will. Well, more than ones and zeros. In this case, it's an encryption key. Through these tech-based initiatives, Christie's is is uh, gouging existence or gauging existence. I think they misspelled this. Not my fault. They misspelled it. Christie's is gauging existing and potential client interest in the nascent market for digital work and blockchain-backed art buying. There has been an understanding that the blockchain was going to inevitably play a role in the art business, said Noah Davis, a Christie's specialist. Hey, people, art news, you misspelled that word. It wasn't me. I'm, I'm going to continue here, but for my listeners, let you know that they spell gouging, and I'm pretty sure they meant gauging. Anyways, uh, we're still at the very infancy of how this technology is going to impact the art world. Uh, going, going on to say that for Christie, the move into the market for NFT works signals a possible push to a- attract a new generation of, of clients who fall outside the traditional fine art collection realm. For the present work, such an audience, Davis said, skews younger, born in the millennial range and is definitely male and more American than not. Christie's, uh, the leading auction house by market share, is not known for its forays in um, experimenting with emerging markets, but with the current sale, the house seems to be changing course. We're at this moment in time uh, where there could be a drastic shift, a demographic shift, a generational shift. When it comes to What excites young collectors, said Davis, Christie's as an organization is really excited, excited about a a moment in time where you see 3.5 million sales just organically appear out of thin air. That's something we can capitalize on. Shout out to capitalism. (laughs) But I, I, I will I can say guilty, guilty as charged. I am the. Demographic, these folks are trying to uh, probably probably market to. Uh, so it said right here that um, you know they're they're trying to push and attract the generation of clients who fall outside the traditional fine art collection realm. I I can't see myself um, having a home. Uh, okay, so I'm in my late thirties. Um, full disclosure. You know, having a bunch of fine art and, and fancy stuff laid out, you know, on the on the walls with frames and getting it um, 
properly curated and registered and everything. Just even if I had the million bucks to spend on there, even if I had you know a hundred thousand dollars on a, a piece that you, you cut a couple pieces, thirty thousand here, forty thousand there. You know, it's just it doesn't fit the aesthetics of how of the interior design of these homes, especially when it comes to private collections. But what I do have is um, I have a projector TV. This is how we watch movies and stuff in my household. We have I have a projector and I can see a digital piece being exhibited, you know, have my music playing in the background and stuff and have a piece that, that like I'm, I'm totally proud of and um, that, that I bid on and I won and it's it's being projected uh, for a dinner party or a cocktail party that we're having at the, at the house. Um, that's dope. And, and maybe, um, you know, investing in uh, smaller projectors or projectors with different capabilities that show um, a collection of works, you know, maybe a, a slideshow even uh, that's happening in the in the hallway or, you know, as you walk into the bathroom um, with a main piece that's being um, featured is in the living room somewhere on another projector screen. Um, so a digital artwork. I mean, I have to say I, I am that I'm guilty. I, I would be probably one of the people that these that this uh, new market, they say it's uh, organically appearing out of thin air. Maybe we've been here all along and you're finally learning how to speak to us. This is perfect timing to an age of COVID when um, we can't go to these art houses or these museums um, or even go to any of these auctions and seeing these things in real life. Having something that is just as artistically, um, aesthetically pleasing um, in the digital format um, having that available to a local like myself, you know, maybe there's something there. Maybe there's something there. I'm going to keep looking into that further personally. I suggest you guys check out some NFT artwork. But we're going to transition now to uh, outside the digital world and into the physical spaces. I talked about a little bit of interior design before. And um, with the new presidency, a new administration, this is something that really they take into account art, uh, the symbology that's constantly around the uh, the office. Um, President Biden revokes Trump's controversial classical architecture order. What is this talking about? So Elizabeth Blair wrote this for NPR uh, late February, and I'll, I'll get right into it and let you know how it ties in. So late Wednesday, President Biden revoked the controversial executive order that then-President Donald Trump signed in December calling, uh, called Promoting Beautiful Federal Civil Architecture. The announcement from the White House was included in an executive order that revoked a number of Trump's actions as president. When Trump first proposed his executive order, it was clearly an out-with-the-new-and-in-with-the-old approach of architecture. He called the modern federal buildings constructed over the last five decades, think boxy, concrete, heavy, brutalism. He called them undistinguished, uninspiring, and just plain ugly. You know what? He actually has a point there. Not going to lie. While the specifics are not yet clear, Biden's executive order instructs the director of the Office of Management and Budget and any related departments and agencies to promptly consider taking steps to rescind any orders, rules, regulations, guidelines, or policies, or portions thereof that would have implemented Trump's actions. 
Biden also calls for the abolishment of any personal positions, committees, task force, or other entities established to fulfill Trump's actions as appropriate and consistent with applicable law. This will likely eliminate Trump's Council on Improving Federal Civic Architecture, which was established in that executive order. Sorry, buddy. But Biden's executive order may put his administration at odds with the U.S. Commission of Fine Arts, though. An independent federal agency established in 1910 that advises lawmakers on matters of design and aesthetics. In 2018, Trump appointed one of modern architecture's biggest critics to the CFA, Justin Chubot, president of the National Civic Art Society. The organization was the driving force behind Trump's executive order. It also led a six-year campaign against Frank Gehry's Eisenhower Memorial, which forced the architect to make some changes to his original design. In a statement to NPR, Chabot, Chubot, Chubot, I think it's Chubot, S-H-U-B-O-W, Chubot, <laughs> who is now chairman of the CFA Defense Trump's call to restore traditional architecture to federal buildings. He writes, our federal architecture has been dismal. For decades, it has been designed in modernist styles that do not represent the ordinary Americans' actual what, what ordinary Americans actually want. And I, and I can um, I can attest to this. I've seen some of these buildings look like um, they look like prisons, and I can't imagine working inside there. You know, tiny windows, it's all boxy. There's no gallantry to them. But I mean, maybe that makes it more cost-effective, perhaps. But these are supposed to be like beacons to democracy and <laughs> beacons to bureaucracy. <laughs> and if anything, they probably spent as much money, speaking of bureaucracy, they probably spent just as much money on this boxy, um, you know, uh, square jaw kind of, uh, kind of buildings that any of the elaborate Elizabethan type stuff or, you know, Spanish type of architecture <laughs> would probably produce. Well, let me go on here. So Chabot points to a National Civic Art Society survey by the Harris Poll. It found that 72% of American adults prefer classical and traditional design for federal buildings. They did a study on this? <laughs> wow, they'll do a study on anything. I didn't, well, I was never surveyed. But anyway, there were wide majorities for tradition across all demographic groups, including political party affiliation. Shortly before he left office, Trump appointed four new members to the seven-member CFA, including Stephen W. Spandle of New Jersey, uh, who designed a tennis pavilion in the White House grounds, which was completed in 2020, and Perry uh, Gulott of New York, who recently completed renovations of the Rose Garden and the Children's Garden at the White House. Oh, no. This is the person that redid the Rose Garden? It's horrible. It was horrible. When you get a second, look at the before and after pictures of the Rose Garden. This guy was appointed to to this. Okay, yeah, get rid of him. Good job, Biden. Get, get rid of this guy. The Rose Garden looks terrible now. I mean, for, for what it's supposed to be and how it was traditionally used, I, nope, can't abide by that. Sorry, it's ugly. All seven members of the commission are white men. Okay, another reason to get rid of him. Come on. Commission members serve four-year unpaid terms. So, uh, okay, fine. Well, it's the title alone, but you get, hey, yeah, 
get him out of there. You don't get the title either. Um, a, a commission of all white men, like, okay, folks, you represent the Trump administration, and as best as they could, they will. They want to make it a monolith um, of who represents all of these different agencies and and and, and boards and uh, groups. So, not that you're white makes it a problem, but you don't have a diversity of um, of opinion and uh, experiences for coming up with how uh, these embody these uh, embodiments of government representation happens. Um, you come up with prison looking like <laughs> prison like buildings. <laughs> I mean, white folks sure know how to build themselves in prisons all over this country. We are the most incarcerated population in all of the world. <clears throat> so, yeah, maybe some diversity in that would probably help some of those extents. All right, Biden, I'll give you, you got one. You got one there, Biden. Good job. Writing in the Washington Post recently, architecture critic Philip um, Kennecott called for Biden to move quickly to remove the current members. He writes, they should be replaced with a diverse body. That's what I was saying. They should be replaced with a diverse body of professionals, including women and people of color, including women. This thing had seven members. They couldn't find a single woman? A single woman? Okay, I mean, I'm I'm pressed by not even finding a person of color or some diversity there, but not even a woman. In, term, in terms of this, oh, it's so it's misogynist and racist. Okay. Checks all the boxes. Um, call for Biden to move quickly to remove the current members. He writes, they should be replaced with a diverse body of professionals, including women and people of color, who bring a wide and spirited range of aesthetic viewpoints to the commission's monthly meetings. Chabot tells NPR, the National Civic Art Society intends to work with the Biden administration to implement change that will build a truly democratic architecture. He notes that historically, our advice has always been heeded. So it seems like a pretty important body. Now, I don't know if they're planning on building any new buildings here. These things are massive here in the D.C. area. Like when they when they build um, a, a building for um, a new agency or if, a new, if an, a, an existing agency is upgrading, these things run blocks, two or three city blocks. Like I'm thinking of like New York, right, In where like, you, a city block is pretty long, but you have several shops there, stores, office buildings that make up that block. We're talking about one agency would take up two or three New York City blocks, just one building. They may have multiple entrances, but just one freaking building that that takes up two or three New York City size blocks. So when they do go up, they're going to be massive. And it's pretty important because when they go up, they're going to be up for a long time. So it'll be great to um, have representation of the diversity of America uh, if you're going to have this um, this this thing, that's going, this vestige that's going to be there for decades to come uh, to represent, um, you know, um, the diversity of our country. With that said, uh, we'll go into our final piece here. And it, it's related. Um, 
this one is in, uh, is in the New York Times. Raji Cook, um, who helped make sense of public spaces, dies at 90. So we're speaking about public spaces here. Who is Raji Cook? You may not know the name, but he and Don Shinovsky developed the pictogram symbols used to identify airports, restrooms, all those things. Um, and he's he's known for his um, sculptural, and he's also known for his sculptural assemblages. Raji Cook, who helped make sense of public spaces, dies at 90. Who is Raji? He and Don Shinovsky actually developed the pictogram symbols used to identify things like airports, restrooms, <laughs> the email. So you may not even heard of him, but you've seen his work. So if you're in an airport or if you're in a mall, wherever you're at, even if you're your office, you know, you have, oh, you, probably even at home, you may even have a, um, like a, a, a no smoking sign or, um, or the, uh, emer the, the, um, what do you call it for the fire hydrant or, or even in your elevator where there's a little telephone symbol, those symbols actually work artwork by folks like Raji Cook. And so he was actually the creator of the, you know, the original person that came up with a bunch of this stuff. Uh, so let me just get into the article here by Neil Genslinger uh, and written in February 2021 in the New York Times. Raji Cook often joked that museum goers were more likely to encounter his artwork in their travels than a portrait by Matisse or a landscape by Van Gogh. They saw it whenever they took an elevator to an upper gallery or stopped in the restroom, for example. In 1974, Cook and Shinovsky Associates, a design firm started by Mr. Cook and Don Shinovsky, a few years earlier, won a contract to develop a set of symbols that could be universally understood and that would efficiently convey the kinds of information people in a public space might need, which restroom was for which gender, the location of the nearest elevator, whether smoking was permitted, and so on. Now, I'll say this. I'll, I'll jump in and say this. So when we talk about the restrooms which for which gender, that had to be updated, you know, with gender non for gender non-conforming folks, for uh, folks that identify uh, as differently. Um but he doesn't have any particular work speaking to that. But I've, I've seen some that show, um, that depict restrooms, for example, that are unisex or that are unidentifiable for uh, who, you know, who is, what gender is assigned at birth can use this particular space to relieve themselves, right? But I digress. The signage uh, the two came up with 34 uh, pictographs, uh, specifically, uh, with others that will be added later, is still in use today. The generic male and female figures, the cigarette in a circle with the red line through it, the minimalist locomotive and plane to signify train station and airport. But Mr. Cook's artistic interests went well beyond utilitarian science. By the time Cook and Shinovsky folded in, 2000, in 2002, Mr. Cook had already begun dabbling in different sort of art, creating three-dimensional sculptural assemblages, boxes, 
incorporating found objects. Most of them were inspired by his exploration of his own heter- heritage in, uh, as the son of Christian Palestinian immigrants and by what he saw on his many trips to the Middle East. He thought of the works which have been exhibited in museums and galleries as art activism. One box contained the names of children who had been casualties of the continuing Israeli-Palestinian conflicts, with the bottom quarter of the box filled with spent cartridges. Some of the children were Jewish, but most were Palestinian, something Mr. Cook thought was not reflected in coverage by American news outlets. Only part of the story is being told, he said in a 2018 interview with Palestinian Muslim U.S. in Woodbridge, Connecticut. Mr. Cook died, unfortunately, on February 6th, this was just last month, uh, at a hospice center in uh, Newton, uh, Pennsylvania, near his home in Washington Crossing. He was 90 years old at the time. For much of his career, for much of his career, Mr. Cook was known as Roger Cook, thanks to a fourth grade teacher's whim. My teacher thought Raji was too difficult to pronounce. He recently told Bucks County, County Magazine and suggested that I be called Roger instead. In a flash, my birth name was changed, but my parents raised no objections in deference to the educator. Only decades later, when he began exploring his own heritage through art, did he revert to his given name. <laughs> wow. His last name, too was someone else's idea imposed on the family long before his birth. His paternal grandfather's last name had been Suleiman, but he was given the nickname Kukuk, the Turkish word for small. But by Turkish occupiers, because of his small, because of his small stature. Later, when the British occupied Palestine, uh, they, they turned that into Cook. They shortened even that, the nickname, into Cook. He goes on to show a picture of him, and it's labeled Mr. Cook. Raji Cook was born in uh, July 1930 in, in Newark to uh, Najib and Jalili uh, Cook, who his interest in art manifested him itself early. In grammar school. I was usually the student who sat in the back row, sketching and drawing while the teacher and the rest of the class were focused on other subject matter. He wrote in A Vision for My Father, a memoir published in 2016. After graduating from Bloomfield High School in New Jersey in 1949, he enrolled in Pratt Institute in in New York, where he earned a degree in um, 1953. And in the 60s, he he was working in Philadelphia Advertising Agency, where he freelance, he was a freelance illustrator named, uh, with a freelance illustrator named Don Shinovsky. This is who he later would would form the uh, the um, organization with, the the team with. Um, to, to for the for the symbol, uh, what do they call those things? Pictographs. Pictographs. They were using the word earlier. Um, and it's called. Yep, pictographs. I was right. Dang, I didn't even have to scroll all the way up there for that. I could have just known about me. Trust yourself, Darwin. All right. <laughs> so, Mr. Sinoski, who lives in uh, Florida, said in a phone interview that they had run an announcement in Graphics Magazine about the new firm. 
the image that we use kind of sums up how he and I related to one another, he said. It was two hands, one pencil, the kind of symbolized how we worked. So this was um, how they came up with their own uh, marketing for their, for their team there. So it's a pretty long article that goes on in life, and it's pretty interesting how Mr. Cook was um, kind of like de... Um, they, they took away his agency, you know, uh, there from even before he was born, from his grandfather to his father, and had to be Americanized for our own consumption. And even going through that, he ended up working in a way that would um, come up with these pictographs that would create a universalized symbol for the rest of the world, again, on the behest of American ideas on how these things should be represented. I, I can imagine, like, um, I've been to the Middle East, and um, a restroom sing symbol would look far different from the short skirt version that's represented in a, uh, what was then portrayed as a woman's or female's restroom, <laughs> right? Much different, or even in Asia, anywhere else in Asia, right? So, um, but it's very interesting to see that um, that he's being commemorated and that these uh, signs and symbols have an origin. And um, you see them all the time. You never even think twice about them. But that's art in your everyday world that maybe you're not even appreciating. But now you can put a name to it next time you see a a sign at the loo. <laughs> you got to go to the loo, right? And yeah, so... Thanks for uh, listening on that part of the art news, but it's about time we get back to our acrostic, our artist of the day, Benny Andrews. Benny Andrews was born the youngest of 10 children to George and Viola Andrews in Plainview, Georgia, a rural farming community near Madison. His mother and father emphasized the importance of education, religion, and freedom of expression. Andrew's father was a self-taught artist who, whose drawings and paintings led to renown as the Dot Man, and even had a retrospective at the Morris Museum of Art. Despite his parents' stress on education, they could not afford to let young Andrew go to school when they needed his help to pick and plant cotton. See, they were a family of sharecroppers. His elementary school was a one-and-a-half-room log cabin. Education past the seventh grade was discouraged in the sharecropping community, but Andrew's parents allowed him and his siblings to attend high school during the winter months. Andrews managed to graduate from high school uh, in Madison in 1948, making him his family's first high school graduate. Benny would later attend Fort Valley College on a two-year scholarship. Unfortunately, Fort Valley College's limited uh, art curriculum made it difficult for him to explore a range of media. He did, however, spend one summer painting murals in Atlanta during this time. Andrews' grades were poor, so when his scholarship ran out, he left college and had to join the Air Force. Having served from 1950 to 1954, um, when he received an honorable discharge, Benny used the GI Bill to attend the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. 
Towards the end of that decade after graduation, Benny moved to New York City, where he settled on the Lower East Side. A little bit about his style. Benny Andrews was a figural painter. In the expressionist style, who painted a diverse range of themes of suffering and justice, including the Holocaust, Native American uh, forced migrations, and even um, Hurricane Katrina. At the art school where he earned his BFA, Andrews was trained as an abstract expressionist. In the 1960s, he began to find his own style of painting, which developed parallel to the flourishing collage moment. Reflecting his minimalist style, Andrews said he was not interested how much he could paint, but how little he could paint. He incorporated his sparing use of geometrical forms to convey broader messages about his subjects. Other influences on his work included surrealism and Southern folk art. His father, George, internationally known for his own work, uh, his own art, uh, was a self-taught artist, remember, the dot man, and produced many illustrative drawings that also influenced the younger Andrews. A self-described people's painter, Andrews focused on figurative social commentary depicting the struggles, atrocities, and everyday occurrences in the world. His co-founding in 1969 of the Rhino Horn Group affirmed his commitment to figural work even as various abstract movements gained ascendancy. However, in his, in his mind, art was no substitute for action. To that end, Andrews also embarked on a long career as an educator, activist, and advocate. In today's Ekfrasday poem, we're going to take a look at Benny's Andrews' Did the bear sit under a tree? It's one of a number of punchy, message-driven works that set the scene. Okay, so the stars and the stripes are rolled back to reveal an angry black man, right? And he's waving his fists both at the flag and the viewer. If the execution is none too subtle, with the figure rendering in rough sacking relief with a slight void of a mouth. All right, so again, here's how this works. Remember, this is going to be a description of a visual art piece. As I'm speaking, I want you to visit the Ekphrastic page on my website, darwindarkwood.com. Check the show notes. There's probably a link there. There, you will find a catalog of all the artwork we discussed. To accompany today's reading, I want you to pull up the image of Did the Bear Sit Under? A Tree by Benny Andrews. I'll give you a second to search for it in your browser. One man, one man his life on the line for the folks trying to break chains. One man, one man, man. rode in the deep in the streets with a dream just to make chains. One man, one man, man. man. still in the field 
took a knee for the same thing. Run, man. Run, man. You know we ain't done yet. When you're living as a black man, it's a different kind of American dream. When you're living as a black man, I'm proud to be a black man. Different kind of American dream. Living in the land of the brave and free. Yeah, I'm all American. But the American dream ain't cheap. We've come a long way. But we still got a long way to go. When you're living as a black man, it's a different kind of American dream. A lot of people die for the flag. A lot of people lie for the flag. Sing a lot of songs for the flag. Do a lot of wrong for the flag. Some people can't breathe for the flag. Had to take a knee for the flag. I really want to ride for the flag. Keep an eye on the flag. But I got to keep an eye on the flag. With skin, black as night, a black boy runs for his life. Face down by the hounds of a checkered past. Objectified commodified and scrutinized by blue eyes and blue and white lights dancing off his skin as he dances in the wind. Fists raised, black saves, black blood. Black love, black saves, black love. Black love, black love, black love. One man, one man, could you spare a little change? Cause it's change at the front door. One man, one man, can you do it right, man? That was Willie Jones, and the single is American Dream, from his 2021 hit album, Right Now. Stream it wherever you find dope music. Benny Andrews' work steadily gained critical attention and was exhibited in several cities, including New York, Philadelphia, Detroit, Provincetown, Massachusetts. That's where Paul Kessler gave Andrews his first solo show in 1960. In 62, the New York Times praised his first New York City solo exhibit at the uh, Forum Gallery. He continued painting until his death from cancer in 2006 in New York. Several posthumous solo exhibitions followed his death. In recent years, Andrew's work has been included in a number of group exhibitions, most notably Face Value, Portraiture in the Age of Abstraction at the National Portrait Gallery. Um, This was shown uh, at the Smithsonian in D.C. Andrew's work is represented in over 50 public collections, one of which brought him back to the city that showed him no love when he first got started, the Art Institute of Chicago. You can find his stuff in many institutions. The Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Met, Philadelphia Academy of Fine Art, and the High Institute, uh, I'm sorry, the High Museum of Art in Atlanta. Andrew's work is represented in over 50 public collections, one of which brought him back to the city that showed him no love when he first got started, the Art Institute of Chicago. You can find his stuff in many institutions. The Met in New York, the Philadelphia Academy of Fine Art, the High Museum of Art in Atlanta, 
you've probably come across a Benny Andrew piece and didn't even realize it. But if you didn't know, now you know. Well, that's it for today, folks. We painted yet another pretty picture with our words. I'm glad you took the time to join me on this journey. For this and other artwork we discussed, please visit darwindarker.com backslash It's where you can find all of this stuff catalog for your viewing pleasure. If you like the show or if you want to leave some creative feedback, maybe, uh, you know, please rate us five stars, hopefully, and leave a comment. And that's always helpful. Another great way to support the show is to share it on your socials, Facebook, Twitter, WhatsApp, whatever. We'll take it. I'm Darwin Mesadu. Thanks again for listening to The Ekfrastic. Yeah.